Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. I'm very pleased to have Lohan Presenter here, the chairman, I believe, nowadays of Ministry of Sound. Hello, Lohan. Hi, Phil. How are you? Uh, I'm very good, and I thank you for your time. I know you must be a busy man. So, Lohan, you have one of those jobs that when someone says, oh, the chairman of Ministry of Sound, everyone has got an immediate idea of, you know, what you do, and they're all going to think it's pretty important. So the first thing I'm going to ask you is, did you ever think you were going to end up being the chairman of Ministry of Sound? Well, Ministry of Sound didn't exist when I was a kid, so uh, difficult to plan ahead. I suppose, <laughs> um, retrospectively, looking back, uh, it all seems to piece together quite well, and there's a, a sort of real natural trajectory to my career that feels quite natural now. But as I, I often say to young people who are starting out on their careers, you know, careers are uh, a, a long time, and it's a question of putting one foot in front of the other and making right decisions at the right time. And I've been very lucky to meet very interesting and inspiring people and to make decisions at the right time when opportunities were put in front of me that enabled me to uh, be doing the job that I am now. Uh, it all seems to have happened very quickly, though, it's quite scarily. You say it's all happened very quickly, and I guess that comes with age, right? Because how long have you been doing this job now or been working at Ministry of Sound anyway? Uh, I've been here for 20 years this year. Wow. So that's quite a long period of time to feel like it's gone quickly, right? It certainly is, yes. So I'm guessing not really um, a boring moment to uh, to remember, right? It's all been pretty uh, pretty fast-paced. Yes. I mean, I, I, I came in in one job in 1999, uh, having been working in the music industry since I finished university. Um uh, but that job has morphed and changed and the business has morphed and changed over that time as well. So uh, what I do now is completely unrecognisable to what I was brought in to do here at the beginning. Right. OK, so we'll talk a little bit about Ministry's development, because obviously Ministry of Sound is one of the iconic names in dance music globally. So everyone will have an idea about what, what it is and what it does. So we'll talk about that in a while. But first, I want to kind of rewind to your your kind of first moment when you knew music was going to be a big thing in your life was it kind of listening to the radio under the bed at night or was it the first time you saw a dj playing or you know when when did music kind of stick its head up and say over here i think um i grew up in a musical household my father had trained as a an opera singer uh but hadn't made it and my younger brother uh, picked up a trumpet at the age of nine and decided he wanted to be a jazz trumpeter uh, and became a child prodigy almost immediately and was one of those kids who just practiced three hours a day and became obsessed with music. And so there was always music in the house. And we had a, a piano in the house when I was a kid and there was a drum kit there. And I started piano lessons when I was four years old. And without much 
commitment to be perfectly honest but I went through and did all my grades and there was always music being played and it was a, a fantastic period to be growing up in because there were so many diverse genres that were being born during the 80s there was you know hip-hop electro eventually acid house music there was indie guitar music which really exploded during uh, the 80s and because music was the cultural center of everything that teenagers were into you know we didn't have mobile phones we didn't have computer games we didn't have social media it, that was really where all your attention and frankly all your pocket money went and uh and i became far from being a, a technically brilliant musician i became quite obsessed with what was going on in music then when i was 15 my dad introduced me to a guy who had a recording studio in his back garden around the corner from us and he taught me how to write and play pop music as opposed to classical music which was all the lessons i'd been having and how to arrange music and how to use drum machines and synthesizers and all the lovely cool tech equipment that was being developed in the in the 80s uh and then i joined a couple of bands and played keyboards originally in bands and then i taught myself the bass guitar because i wanted to stand at the front of the stage and really from about 15 16 i knew that i wanted to work in the music industry but i didn't know quite as what okay so that's a uh, interesting that you kind of see the 80s as a as a kind of golden age of music and i i'm i'm around the same age as you so i i kind of remember exactly the same period that you're talking about and i always recall my parents telling me the 60s were the golden age of music and once I listened to a Beatles album, I can't remember which one it was, but I thought, oh, my God, each of these tracks is actually a genre. Each of these tracks has, has spawned so many imitators uh, that, you know, music has kind of gone off in all these areas since the 60s. But it's interesting that you say, in your view, the 80s were another period where that was happening. Do you think it was still happening? Do you think it it had happened all the way through? And it's just that you and, and I were born then and we were seeing it still happening. I'm, and if so, I'm, I'm, think- I'm sure you're right, Phil. I'm sure it comes down to the period that you grow up, grew up in. And I think there is some research that says that the music that's the most important to people is the music that they were listening to when they were 15. And I think that resonates because music was very important to you then and you didn't have that many other diversions and you know life gets in the way doesn't it so yeah and it's interesting you say oh there were no computer games i I tell you i spent most of my mid-teens pirating sinclair spectrum games on cassettes with my friends but we were listening to music all the time so i think that that was there but uh, i take your point that it wasn't quite so fragmented what what people did with what young people did with their time back then over the 20 years you've been at ministry, of course, as a company, ministry has seen that that big change from music being the centre of teen culture, if you like, to just being one of many things. And you must have had had to have business conversations about how do we kind of go for the people? How do we get people into, into our club and into music rather than some of these other things that didn't exist earlier? I mean, is that the case? Is that something you've had to grapple with as a business? Well, I think what was always really interesting and exciting about electronic music was that it was always reinventing itself within the confines of being electronic music so from the point at which it it, it first really emerged which was the late 80s as acid house and house music and techno that come over from you know new york and chicago and and detroit um it it then shifted and the european sounds came in and so you saw house music 
develop into trance music and then you know you had sub genres like drum and bass that were all pretty underground and you had uh uh they then morphed into garage and uk garage and and it constantly developed and we we were always at the forefront of that as ministry of sound so there was never really a problem with electronic music not developing not reinventing itself and are not being able to adapt to that the, from a business perspective what changed was the way that people consume music mm. so um we won't go into too much depth about that i mean it's a well it's a well-read and well-trodden path um what's kind of changed in the music industry recently but you mentioned ministry of sound has managed to keep up with everything that's changed musically what DJs have kept up with it? Who have you seen doing the same thing on a personal musical kind of journey um, and keeping themselves relevant over the years? I mean, there can't be a massive number of DJs who are kind of, we, we all know the very, very big names, um, but then who have you seen that you thought, you know, they've really kept on it. They've really kept themselves fresh in this game. I think you have to say Pete Tong, really. Mm. I mean, I think for, right from the middle of the 80s up until now, Pete has been at the vanguard of, of what people are listening to and how electronic music and taste are changing. And that comes from the sort of deep-seated passion and, and commitment to electronic music. And, and he's been on that journey and is still there. And that's very, very challenging to do, obviously, when you get to our age. Um, but, you know, he's been consistent where other people have uh, had their moment and fallen by the wayside. But I suppose... Being at Radio 1 uh, and now being one of the elder statesmen at Radio 1, pretty much as John Peel was as, as the genera generation before him, I think he's been uh, probably one of the few names that you would say has uh, has lasted the distance. Yeah. Okay, so I want to just pull back to Ministry of Sound as a company now, and I don't think our audience would, would properly appreciate all the things that Ministry of Sound is into. And I think we said at the beginning, you know, people have a picture of Ministry of Sound. Most people, certainly from the UK, will think the club. I think globally a lot of people will remember the kind of high days of the compilation albums and so on. But just give 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 the audience a, a feel for what Ministry of Sound is into and what, it, what it's up to as a company right now. Well, right now there are five businesses that are part of Ministry of Sound. Of course, there's our eponymous nightclub, which will celebrate its 30th year uh, in a couple of years' time. And wow. it's still as busy as ever. We opened our doors in September 91, uh, and it's still we believe, uh, and many others would endorse, the, the the best place to listen to house music anywhere in the world is on the floor in the box. And it, it really is a fantastic nightclub. And it's arguably, I, we would argue, the most famous nightclub that's ever existed in the history of the universe. Uh, <laughs> it's very difficult to come up with somebody, that's, uh, another club that, that, that can beat that because it's, it, it, you know, it's really stayed, stood the test of time. Um, we have a, a, an event business where we take the Ministry of Sound experience out on the road. We also have a, a brand and business called Head Candy, which we, we bought about 15 years ago, which we also tour and take out Head Candy experiences on the road. And more recently, we've launched the annual Classical, which is a, um, a, a fantastic touring experience, which is a full 50-piece uh, orchestra playing classical arrangements of dance music and that's proven to be very popular 
So that's the nightclub and the live events business. Uh, a couple of years ago, having been in the fitness space for a number of years, when we made a video back in 2004 for a, a dance record called Call On Me by Eric Prids, we had some people working out in the gym and that proved to be quite a popular video and quite a big record. Uh, we thought, actually, electronic music is perfectly suited to fitness and workouts. So... Um, we started making fitness DVDs and workout DVDs, and we had a very successful business for 10 years doing that until people stopped buying DVDs. Hmm. And then we started doing music to work out to and music to run to. We had a series called Running Tracks on iTunes. And so music and fitness are sort of intrinsically linked. And then a couple of years ago, we decided to launch our own uh, high-intensity interval training studio, HIT Studio, uh, called brilliantly, uh, imaginatively, Ministry of Sound Fitness, uh, and that's based in a couple of railway arches around the back of our nightclub. And it's just the most amazing place to go and work out because it's got a full-on nightclub vibe and sound system to it. Uh, and we run classes in there every day. So that's uh, a new business. We have a music publishing company. We sold our record company. Uh, which after we'd had 21 UK number one singles and we'd sold over 70 million albums, because of the changing nature of the record business, it made more sense for our record business to be owned by a large multinational company. So we sold that to Sony Music back in 2016, but we stayed in music publishing, which is the management and exploitation and enhancement of songwriter rights. So we have a, a small number of brilliant songwriters signed to our roster and we help them develop their material we place it with different artists we help them get it exploited uh so we have a music publishing company and then finally and by no means least we have our new business from which i'm talking to you now which is again imaginatively entitled the ministry and the ministry is a shared workspace and private members club for the creative industries uh, we're set in a 50,000 square foot Victorian warehouse uh, in southeast London, just round the corner from our nightclub in Elephant Castle. We have 750 office desks upstairs filled with the most amazing creative business, creative sectors businesses. Uh, but there's also a members club here, which has a full service bar and restaurant, two recording studios. There's a 40-seater cinema, there's an event space for conferences, there's private meeting and dining rooms, and there's just this amazing community of people who are networking and doing business together. And we are, we think, creating the environment where the next generation of creative entrepreneurs are going to spring from, and it's, it's brilliant to be part of that. Oh, it's, thank you for, uh, you'd expect you to know pretty, pretty clearly what, what the company's up to, but I'm sure... If I learn something, I'm sure nearly everyone else listening will. So thanks for giving that succinct rundown of what, what's going on at Ministry of Sound nowadays. So I, I want to share with you my first experience at Ministry of Sound, which was way back in, I think, 1993. Uh, and it was a Hacienda versus Ministry of Sound event. Uh, I would argue another very, very famous nightclub. Of course, it died young, the Hacienda. It did. It did, very sadly. But um, as did it, I, as did its founder, very sadly. Yes, indeed. Um, let's let's not forget Tony Wilson. Um, but the 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 point I guess I'm kind of trying to get at here is the uh, thinking back to the days, uh, back, literally within a couple of years of the place opening, 
um, and you were um, you were not quite yet there yet. Were you aware of the Ministry of Sound though at that point in your life? Were you aware of this business and the, and the scene that it, that it sprung out of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I I went to college, uh, university in 1989, uh, just as Acid House was blowing up, uh, and I went off to. I originally wanted to be a, a recording engineer, but uh, unlike now where there are a plethora of courses that you could go and study that on, at that point, there were none. So I went to study acoustic engineering, uh, which turned out to be far more engineering than it did acoustic. Um, <laughs> and I went down to Southampton University to do that. And while I was there, I played in bands, but I also discovered house music and start going to raves which was starting to crop up all along the south coast and experiencing electronic music right at its very birth and of course the ministry opened in 1991 while i was still at college and and you couldn't not be aware of it because it was this thing that was exploding in london i always thought i wasn't cool enough to go um uh, and then I didn't really go until I got up to London for the first time. So that that was much later. But yes, absolutely, I was aware of it. And I became m- far more aware of it when they started releasing CDs and compilation albums. And I, I, I remember the first time uh, I saw a big one of those, which was at a party in 1996. And uh, uh, I became aware that this was an album that everybody had. And, and that really was the album that was the turning point for for ministry of sound recordings and it wasn't long after that i joined them so this is this is an interesting thread because you you're from a musical family you've music's clearly very very important to you um you kind of the technical side of music uh something that you don't appear to be massively um you know you you didn't become a great technical player like maybe your brother did um the the um the DJing side of it, it, you know, you were never pushing yourself as a big name DJ. To my knowledge, I'm, I'm sure that's right. But down the middle of that is this love already at this early age of kind of albums and, and programming and the way music fits together. Is that is that the kind of thing that was attracting you even back then? Um, I suppose at that point, I knew I wanted to be in the music business, but I didn't know as what. I knew that a career in the music business would be far longer lived behind the scenes than it would be uh, as a musician. Yeah. I wasn't really, and I don't think anybody can really say that they were aware that there was an opportunity to make a living as a DJ, and it wasn't something that had appealed to me anyway. And so when I was at university, I was playing in bands, and then in my final year, uh, I ran for election as an entertainment officer in the student union, primarily because... Uh, it was a full-time paid job for a year after I graduated, and I didn't, okay. really, I didn't really want to go and get a real job at that point. I yeah. was enjoying college too much, and I won, and I got to run t- three big venues for a year and and program them and book the talent and run the P&Ls and run the crew and run the teams and organize big parties. And so that was really where I started my 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 working life and uh although uh, i still had a lot of the the big promotions companies like the sjms and the metropolises uh and the phil mcintyres pushing me 
bands and acts to perform in my venues, I was really excited by what was happening in dance music. And, and I started programming weekly raves in one of my venues. And then we started putting these all-nighters on for 2,000 people called Adrenaline. And we'd get people like Groove Rider and Fabio and LTJ Bookham. And, our, you know, the flyers that we would put out would detail the size of our sound system and the, the lighting rigs that we'd bought and, you know, the different types of lighting that was on there. Uh, and, and, you know, you'd put visuals on your flyers as well. And so we were, we were very much at the vanguard of what was happening. And obviously, the, you know, this was when all the M25 raves were ha- happening and there were big raves uh, happening in fields all along the south coast. I remember going to Perception in Swindon and watching the Prodigy play in a tent at three o'clock in the morning and thinking, oh my God, this is amazing. God, it's quite cold. How am I going to get home? So uh, so I did have those experiences and, and started to channel them into my working life. So yeah, it was, a, uh, it was an important period for me. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like it. I mean, you were basically in charge of a whole load of raving kids in their thousands um, at a time when the government and the authorities weren't really sure what to do with this thing that was happening. Any, any stories from back then that you care to share with us? Oh, I just, I, I remember we, we had to go and ask the university for permission to use uh, the venue all night. And uh, I remember them saying to us, well, but uh, you can't have an alcohol license all night. And we said, well, okay, well, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> and they asked us why it didn't matter. We said, well, because, you know, people aren't there to drink. They're there to dance and party. So there was always the great unspoken <laughs> about what was, yeah. what was really going on. And then I had to really ramp up security because there were lots of heavy people around, you know, trying to get into the venue for nefarious purposes. And so, you know, we cut our teeth that way as well and had to learn how to run those operations in circumstances where the world was still very murky. Yes. Well, really, you know, clearly a great grounding for what, what was to come, but you weren't aware of what was to come at this point. What what happened next for you then after that, that year? Did you stay there longer or did you move on? Or was well, that no, to- I only had the job for a year because that was the that was the term of the job. And then I thought, well, look, what a great grounding. I've got a degree in acoustic engineering. I've done a year as a, a venue booker. I know all the agents. I know all the promoters. I know the DJs. I've, I, you know, I can't fail to get a job. And then I failed to get a job. Um, and I wrote to 100 record companies and they all rejected me. And I kept all the letters, actually. I actually really wanted to work in the record business and not in the live business. Um, interestingly, over that period, I was offered a job as Rolf Harris's agent so I was. Well, that could have been. That could have been. You said it's all about the right decisions. It's all right about time. the right decisions at the right time. That would have been a very interesting fork in the road. Uh, <laughs> frankly, glad it's one I didn't take. Um, and then uh, I uh, eventually got a compliment slip back from a guy saying, "Yeah, come and see me." And I went to see him, and he said, "Yeah, I'll give you a job. We've got a little record promotions company and a label. You can come and work here." I said, "Fantastic." I said, "What's the salary?" He said, there isn't a salary. He said, I'll pay your tube fare. So I I went back to live with my mum and dad, which was pretty galling after four years away at college. And uh, and I taught piano in the evenings. And uh, and I used to get the train in during the day, which he would pay for. 
and I started stuffing really, really bad soul and dance records in envelopes and sending out DJ reaction sheets and sending them out to mailing lists of DJs and phoning them up and trying to get them to give me good reviews or play them on the radio or review them in the press. And, uh, I, yeah, I started working in, in record promotions and really started to learn how you set records up. Go into a bit more depth. What do you, what, what does, how do you set a record up? Well, most records are crap. Uh, mm-hmm. That's rule number one. Uh, however, if those people are giving you money to promote those records, you have to do your damnedest to do so. So what you would do is try and you listen to the records and say, okay, well, what DJs do I think would play this? And then you'd send them out and you'd try and get their reactions and uh, and see if you could get them to spin them and add them to charts. And then when they went on the right charts, then they went up the chart in Record Mirror, which was included in Music Week. And then they might get played on the radio occasionally. And if if they were popular on specialist radio shows and they cross over and get considered for playlists on the bigger radio stations, and then if they got put on playlists, then they'd go into high rotation. And then the retailers would start inquiring about them. And then you could ship them out and then you could, promo the record and build it up for a chart release and the whole thing about the way the uk record business was designed is that you would do all that promotion work and all that hype up front and then try and chart it as high as you possibly could in the first week and then if it went into the chart high enough you'd go up the playlist you'd get off the top of the pops and you would build a record there now what i'm describing is the ideal scenario that would happen one time in a thousand so most of the records you worked on never got anywhere near that and it was really a thankless, tough task plugging away. But I, you know, plugging bad records is a really great way to learn how hard it is to plug records. So um, I did that for three years. Um, and I used to go around record companies and sell our promotion services to them. Uh, and then occasionally I'd get a contract and i'd go and work on those records and occasionally very occasionally we'd have a hit record but we weren't the best record promotions company in the world and we had very little money it was hand to mouth and we had to take the jobs that we were given it was a real frankly uh cash in hand slog they did eventually put me on a salary but it wasn't a terribly big one and all the time i was looking for the next opportunity and then one day in 95 I saw a, an ad in the Guardian media section for a position as a market analyst at Warner Music who was setting up a strategic marketing division. And I thought, well, that's interesting because, you know, I'm an engineer. I'm good with maths. Uh, I, I, I've got a musical background. I've been working in the independent sector for three years. I've done a bit of promotions. And I applied, and there were 5,000 applicants for that job, and I got it. Wow. So a real a real coup to grab that job and i guess it's interesting that the skills from your universe i mean let's let's cut to it there's there can't be a massive amount of demand for an acoustic engineer right it's um there's there's not a massive amount of demand but there's not a massive amount of supply either so i I could have gone and you know many of my uh compatriots on that course have gone on to become very successful studio and concert hall designers or right. designing sound systems and, and music technology or or working on uh industrial noise or entertainment noise um and i'm still in touch with quite a lot of them and, and loudspeaker designers and 
uh, you know, in fact, what, one of the guys on my course designed the system that's in the main room at Ministry of Sound now. In a- well, it's, in- it's interesting you say that because I was going to say you must be a real pain in the ass to work for if you're a sound engineer at Ministry of Sound. Uh, I don't okay. tell anyone. I, 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 <laughs> oh, really? I intentionally hide it and then just play, play the card at the last minute for, for my own amusement more than anything else. <laughs> I love it. But but actually that did help you because it gave you the, you had the, as you say, the analytical background kind of came into play. Yes. Um, and so this was uh, two or three years before ministry. Uh, how did it go? How did it go there? Well, it was, it was interesting because I was doing strategic marketing. I was looking at um, what parts of the industry were making money and, uh, and I was particularly fascinated by this boom in the compilation album sector and by these three brands that had all released compilation albums simultaneously uh, from nightclubs, Cream, Renaissance and Ministry of Sound. And they'd all released an album around the same time at the end of 95. They'd all sold 100,000 plus copies. And I wrote a report and gave it to my boss and said, we should be doing something like this. And he was like, yeah, 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 Lohan, that's nice. Could you go and do your day job? Um, And then eventually I'd, I'd kept hunting him ideas and and at the end of 96 he said why don't you make an album a compilation album and I'd never done it beforehand and so I made my first record which was a uh, uh, an album of disco classics called Disco Mix 96 Um, and it was a real uh, uh, it's a really tough and horrible experience because I didn't know what I was doing but miraculously it sold 150,000 copies and all of a sudden they made me marketing manager and I was in charge of doing compilations. And it was very shortly after that that I met James Palumbo, now Lord Palumbo, who was the founder of Ministry of Sound because the compilation world was a very, very small world. Um, and Ministry of Sound had gone from releasing an albums that had sold 10, 20, 30,000 copies to at the end of 96, around the time when I released my first record, they released an album called The Annual Two. Uh, and that album sold over a million and that put them on the map. It's still the best-selling dance music compilation of all time. And uh, uh, I met them. Uh, we started doing some work together on a joint venture basis. And then after a few years, they asked me to come and run their compilation business and then eventually their record company. So we'll get back to ministry. We'll get back to what happened in that period of your life. I just want to stop here and talk compilation albums for a second, because a lot of people listening to this as DJs, I know are going to be fascinated about the skill and the art that goes into compiling a compilation album, which you were at this point, right at the forefront of personally at the forefront of what, what makes a good compilation album? Oh, is it the, the order of the tracks? Is it the choice of track? Obviously, it's going to be elements of all of these things. What what skills did you feel like, I've really got my finger on something here that not many other people know this much about? Well, I suppose being an analyst, uh, I, I tried to unpack what I thought uh, forensically were the, the key things that made these records work. And because I was doing chart analysis uh, at Warner's, um, I, I would... I would trawl over all of the data and and look at particularly the albums that had done very well. And obviously, the ones that really performed had a great brand. They had the strongest track list. The running order was thoughtfully put through with the biggest records at the front end. Um, They were great value for money. And they had a fantastic marketing campaign 
and they were, you know, well positioned in stores. So, and there were, you know, eight or nine or ten other tricks that that one would perform in order to make a product as good as it could be. And I learned those on Warner's time and money by making lots of mistakes. Um, uh, but I could see that there was a lot that was good about what the Ministry of Sound were doing. And obviously, they had this incredible, powerful brand, and they were led by DJs as well. Uh, originally, the likes of Pete Tong and Boy George, uh, but then Tall Paul and Judge Jules, who would meet, mix some of the later annuals. And I, uh, but what I did when I came to ministry is I married some of the technical reasons why compilations worked, i.e., marketing and uh, running order and uh, media buying and all of those sorts of things and retail profile with some of the things that Ministry of Sound just did brilliantly and naturally, which were uh, DJs and branding and creative marketing and selection of music and all of those sorts of things. Mm. So um, Ministry was naturally just very organically doing phenomenal business. But when I came in, I put some science on top of it and it just took it to another level. So it's um, it's really interesting to hear that because I guess if there's a spectrum of in inverted commas, compilations. Down at one end, you've got the kind of hits compilations in, in the UK. It's, now that's what I call music and that kind of thing. And I guess at the other end, you've got the underground mixtapes that were literally being just swapped yeah. without, money, without money changing hands, if you like, just kind of like the hottest mixtape of, yeah. of the month or whatever. Looking back, did Ministry of Sound with its compilations kind of draw a line right down the middle of that or was it closer to one or the other ministry of sound started where that mixtape thing was and then it became the now that's what i call music of dance and uh, you know you can look on that and say it was vulgar but what we always thought of ourselves was was as aspirational to the mainstream you know what we did was take a quite uh 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 a difficult to understand and navigate underground music scene and make it commercially accessible. So we would jump on the next genre of dance music at about the time that it was ready to explode. And, right. you know, and I can point to albums like Trance Nation or The Sound of UK Garage or The Sound of Deep House or, uh, you know, our dubstep series as points in our journey where we accepted and acknowledged that a genre was about to burst onto the mainstream and then we took it and packaged it up for the mainstream. So talking about, you know, the next big thing, Ministry of Sound as a club has been running for, as you say, what, 28, 29 years now? Yeah. You must have seen in your couple of decades there some real ebbs and flows in, in the club's popularity and in the in the nights that were working and that weren't and the music that, that came and went um what's what do you, what stayed the same what what hasn't changed over that period what, what what's the essence that apart from are you going to say space i'm sure and the, the you know the, the main room being so important but what is it that's remained people love to dance People love to dance. They love to hear music on a great system with other people who are enjoying what they're doing. And there's nothing you can, that's not a thing you can do on an app. That's not a thing that you can do in the privacy of your own home. There, there's nothing quite like being on that dance floor at three o'clock in the morning when the DJ drops a big tune and it all goes off and everyone around you is going mental. And that, 
really is what's so terribly unique about uh, running a nightclub. And the, the music changes and the clothes change and the people change and the DJs change, but the experience is still the same. It's a, it's a great way of putting it. It's all about moments, isn't it? It's something we teach at the basically the, the crux of what a DJ does is creating moments. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's um, interesting that I was at last time I was at ministry admittedly was a two or three years ago now, but I was at a defected night and clearly defected is one of those label evergreen labels that's been going and going and going. Um, but grew, the crowd, it grew out of ministry of sound. Did you know that? Yep. Yeah. And the crowd were teenagers. The crowd were kids. Yeah. The crowd. Uh, and it was, it was really nice to see, this 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 genre of music cross across probably two generations, never mind one, um, and that surprised me because I've been to god awful nights, you know, reunion old school events where it's horrible, and you kind of walk in thinking you're the only one who's still young, and you realise everyone's your age, and they're very far from that. And um, no, for me it was really refreshing to see ministry with a a young crowd and a genre that wasn't young, and even you know a label that wasn't young anymore as well. Um, is that something that happens a lot? Are Defected kind of unique in that in that respect? I think Defected is a very, very special business that is driven by uh, a, a deep passion and knowledge of one man. And, uh, you know, I've got utmost and total respect for Simon Dunmore. I think his commitment to the cause and his sort of North Star focus on what he believes in uh, has not wavered at all. Frustratingly, when we were business partners, because you know the popularity of his particular style of house music has ebbed and flowed over the years, and you know in the early days when it flowed away from them, and we wanted Simon to take a more commercial direction for the sake of running a business, he was he steadfastly refused, uh, and that led to friction between us at the time. He's ultimately been right. You know, he's stayed true and his brand is true and his audience understand what his brand is and his staff are passionate. And he's been able to adapt within the confines of what he believes in and what he's passionate about. Uh, and I do think he's pretty unique. I can't really point to many other brands uh, other than his and ours that have stayed the distance that long. Mm. So still good bedfellows after all these years. Yes, um, yeah. I mean, we, we get on better now than ever, and we host their Glitterbox events, and, you know, I see Simon regularly. So what you've seen promoters come and go, scenes come and go, uh, crowds come and go, etc. How long is the average lifespan of, of something, if you like, before it's time to move on? Is it five years? Is it three years? Is it oh. did you get a good decade out of it? You know, what's... Well, there's no such thing, really, because I think... When scenes emerge, uh, some of them have greater long, long, longevity than others. You know, there's. But I mean, name, I mean, names and faces around the club. When do you think? Yeah, it's all changed again. You know, I'm the, you know, last those... last weekend we had a night in paradise night with David Morales headlining. You know, which was a you know a, a doff of our cap to the Paradise Garage, which you know was the club which Ministry of Sound was based on, and mm. and we had the a lineup that would have been appropriate to play at the Paradise Garage. And we've got further performances. We you know, regularly have Masters at Work playing down the club. We have Todd Terry playing down the club. So, you know, some of those uh, 
those people are still going strong, are still playing every week. Some genres, like dubstep, for example, are a spike uh, and disappear back into the underground again, having had a moment in the sun. Some genres, like drum and bass, never really explode, but keep going and have a deep, passionate fan base uh, that can always rally a crowd. It's just horses for courses, really. We have... Um, <clears throat> the gallery on Friday nights, which started night as a, a, a started life as a trance night, um, but now showcases the best in EDM talent. Uh, I don't like the phrase EDM, but you know it's become a sort of accepted global yeah. definition yeah. for for uh, for that style of dance music. Um, but you know, Ministry of Sound is still a house club, and nothing sounds better than house music on that system on Saturday night. So. You have, you mentioned Todd Terry, David Morales, you've got DJ Harvey and artwork and people like that. Do, what kind of crowds come to these events? Uh, is it is it the older crowd or is it a mix or is it, does it tend to be younger people? I'm interested in the... There's always, there's always a mix at Ministry of Sound because there's always people who are in London for the first or second or third time who want to come to Ministry of Sound and are there regardless of the DJ that's playing. Um uh, there are people who just want a good night out regardless of what you're programming and know that Ministry of Sound is reliable for that. And then there are people that are there for, their, for the talent. So obviously the, the crowd changes depending on the DJ, but it's not dependent on the DJ. Yeah, okay, I get you. So it's almost like because London is a, for want of a better word, a tourist city, that there is that element of things feeding into your No, it's not a tourist. It is a tourist city, but it's a global city. You know, you've got 12 million people live in London, many of them not British, uh, and many of them uh, are here in a transient way. They're here for a while, but they're not here forever. And, And London is not the London that we grew out of. So... Ministry has matured as a business. I think there must be an element of finding things to sell to your customers as much as finding new customers for your things, right? And that's that's any business that's growing up. I'm interested in whether you think there are any limits to this, whether as people who were first going out at the time that you mentioned at the beginning of this whole thing, at least in the UK, the late 80s and early 90s, um, is there a limit to... <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I hope you guess can see what I'm trying to say here. You know, is it can you continue to mature and grow up and evolve with with the audience? Uh, it doesn't seem to have died yet. In a way that rock music, I, I think, seems to kind of have a higher limit. But with dance, it doesn't seem to be there. Uh, well, look, I think it's all about the products that you create as a business. And of the five businesses that we're in at the moment, in every single one of them, we're trying to pioneer and develop and to lead and give our customers in each of those areas a fabulous experience. That isn't necessarily linked to dance music. I mean, dance music was our roots, but you know, we're creating and building a creative workspace now that doesn't have Mm. anything specifically to do with dance music, but, our heritage gives us the right to do that. So talk about that for a second, because I'm interested in the kind of businesses that you're attracting. Do you find that just naturally you attract people in music or or is that really not the experience? There are quite a few music companies in the building, but there's also a few TV production companies in the building. Uh, There are all sorts of different businesses in here, marketing agencies, creative agencies, researchers in media research businesses all sorts of interesting people 
Well, it's, it's cool. And I think the, men, the the private member club thing seems to be quite big in London. Uh, I, I I have a, a someone I work with who's who's kind of founded one. And is, is that the thing? Is it becoming a thing now? Um, well, there have been private members clubs in London since, yeah, of since course, the Victorian but... era. Yeah. Um, I think there's always uh, an offer for the different communities that are growing up in our generation. It was Soho House, you know, and Soho House exploded in the 90s. And for us being music and media people growing up in the 90s, it was right for us. Uh, you know, we're now... Uh, we've gone beyond, we were Gen X, we've gone beyond the millennials and we're now into Gen Z. And what we're trying to do is create an environment for the next generation of young creative professionals to meet and network and build their businesses. And I think we're doing very well. And it's interesting that because you're ultimately in charge of this business and you remember back to the days when you were calling on these skills that you'd learned and were built, you were kind of finding your own way and thinking, hey, I'll use a bit of my analytics to, to help me with analysing the music industry when it was nothing to do with acoustic engineering, et cetera, et cetera. Do you find yourself looking at this thing you're making and thinking, I can push a few buttons to help these businesses that we're, we've got this this um, roof over um, and connect them in ways that I kind of had to figure out for myself? Yeah. Do you feel like there's a bit of legacy stuff? 100%. That's what I see my role as doing. And, you know, I had three new businesses move into the building yesterday and I made a point of going up to their offices and introducing them myself and uh, and asking if there's anything I could do to help. And when they get settled, they need to come to one of our networking breakfasts and I'll introduce them to people. Uh, and I take great pleasure in going around the building and meeting new people and understanding how their businesses work. And then uh, if I can make introductions or prefer some advice, then I'll do so. That's that's really good. It must feel like uh, it must feel a bit full circle for you in that respect. Oh, it really does. And and as I said at the uh, at the beginning of our chat, Phil, I, you know, you blink your eyes and your career's zip past. And I, I, you know, I can't quite believe that, you know, I started college on my journey thirty years ago this year. It it it, it you know thirty years has gone by in such a flash, and I don't feel any really different to how I did when I was eighteen and starting out. But obviously. I'm a bit fatter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a gym around the corner, so there's no, there's no excuse there. Um, and, you know, we, we're coming to the end of our time, and I just want to kind of come back to your family. Um, how did your brother turn out with his jazz trumpeting? Did he stick with that, or did he go off in another direction? No, he stuck with that, and, you know, he was a very successful session player uh, and teacher. He ended up being professor of jazz at the Royal Academy of Music, and he now lives in Copenhagen with his family, and I, uh, you know, he's involved in a variety of brands there, uh, bands there. But he's a, he's a, he teaches jazz trumpet now to the next generation of uh, talented jazz musicians. And what about your parents? At what point did they stop thinking, go and get a real job, Lohan, and actually accept that this was the the route that you were going to take? My mum still thinks I work for the government. <laughs> And just in case anyone's listening to this outside the UK, it's the ministry, the pun on the word ministry. There, well, it's not even a pun, is it? It's a, uh, a cheeky, a cheeky aside. I remember Ministry of Sound projecting their logo onto the real Houses of Parliament once. I think that was real, wasn't it? Yeah, it well, the, the great story, and you should ask your your friend Steve about it. Was uh, the uh, on their fifth anniversary? They had an album called uh, One Half of a Whole Decade. And in order to promote it, 
they uh, at three o'clock in the morning they took a van and they drove up outside Victoria uh, outside um, uh, Buckingham Palace and they opened the side of the van and they projected onto the side of Buckingham Palace a huge Ministry of Sound logo along with the slogan Ministry of Sound lasts longer than a royal marriage because all at that point all of the royal marriages yeah. were in the process of dissolving. Um, you know, and you can imagine driving up with a van to the front of Buckingham Palace now and opening the doors in the middle of the night. What would happen to said van? At that point, nobody thought anything of it. They got all the photos. As they were packing up, one sole Bobby strolled over and said, what's going on here then? They said, oh, nothing. Uh, we just, uh, just, just broke down for a second. And they drove off. So there was no hassle. Now I think they would be immediately surrounded by security services and probably strategically exploded. Yeah, that's um, how times have changed. They eh? certainly have. Um, where, where, where we are down here in Gibraltar, the, the Rock of Gibraltar, I don't know how well you you know the area, but the Rock of Gibraltar looks out over Spain. And of course, there's a contentious thing going on there. And the sun came down and projected uh, hands off our rock. Uh, <laughs> just at the time when it was blow, blowing up, one of its periodic blow up blow ups in the news. So, uh, so yeah, maybe they got the idea from Ministry of Sound. Lohan, you've been very generous with your time and your stories. I know a lot of people get a lot from what you've shared today. Thank you very much for, for coming on. Um, I'm going to ask you one final question. Um, you've, you're a hands-on kind of guy. You won't, uh, you won't have uh, missed some of these things that I'm about to kind of call on your experience of. What, what makes a good DJ and what, kind of, what, what means a DJ is very likely to completely mess up and flop? What's the difference between those two kinds of people? You're playing to a crowd. You're not playing for yourself. I think that's the key thing. And, you know, if if the crowd aren't enjoying, if the audience aren't enjoying what you're playing, then it's you that have got it wrong, not them. Uh, and I always think, you know, you need to adapt quickly. I mean, I'm not a DJ. I play a very bad 80s party set myself. Um, but, you know, there's nothing worse than playing to an empty dance floor. And you've got to take people on a journey, as we used to do with our compilation albums. And you've got to build people up. You've got to give them the highs and lows. But, you, you know, the frenzy has got to go on to this massive end. It's a musical journey that you're taking people on. But you are taking people on. And as with everything, you have to be customer focused. Well, so. A great point and a great way to end our chat together. Uh, Lohan presents the Ministry of Sound. Chairman, thank you very much for coming on Tales of the Dance Floor today. And what better to have the man who probably manages the very, very best dance floor in the world uh, on a podcast with a title like that. Lohan, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Phil.